0: Hi, this is Shauna. Before we get to today's guest, I want to take a minute to learn more about you, the listener. We've put together a short survey at fueltalent.com slash podcast to gather information on who's listening and to give you a chance to make suggestions and comments about the show. I want what fuels you to be a great resource for you and your interests, and I hope these interviews give you practical advice along with inspiration for your career and life. Help us continue to serve you better by going to fueltalent.com slash podcast. Thank you so much. Now let's start today's show. Hi, this is Shauna, the CEO and founder of Fuel Talent. One of the things I have loved most in my 25-year recruiting career has always been the stories that people tell. Stories of leadership, career choices, company ideas, and team building. My inspiration for starting the What Fuels You podcast came from being curious about people's lives and wanting to help share their stories. What path brought them to this place? What decisions did they make that led to failures and successes? Who influenced those decisions and what lessons were learned along the way? I hope you enjoy the What Fuels You podcast. Today's guest on the What Fuels You podcast is Hope Cochran. Hope is currently a managing director at Madrona Venture Group. Previously, she served as the CFO of King Digital, the creators of Candy Crush. At King, she not only led the company through an IPO and acquisition to Activision, but also became a rockstar Candy Crush player. Prior to that, she was the CFO of Clearwire through its sale to Sprint in 2013 and was the founder of her own company, Skills Village, which she went on to sell to PeopleSoft. In 2013, Fortune named her to the top 10 most powerful women in gaming, and in 2018, Women's Inc. named her most influential corporate director. She is also on the boards of three public companies, Hasbro, MongoDB, and New Relic. Hope has a passion for the arts and holds a BA in economics and a BA in music opera from Stanford University. Welcome, Hope. So good to see you.
1: So great to be here. Thank you, Shauna.
0: Yeah. Okay. I'm going to hit you with some rapid fire. Um, I'm curious, what's the first thing you do when you wake up? The Wordle. Oh, me too. Um, <laughs> what is the first concert that you ever attended? Amy Grant. Oh, nice. What's your favorite instrument?
1: Well, I was a music major in college um, and I was an opera singer. So I have to say my vocal cords are my favorite
0: instruments. Do you sing still?
1: I don't sing that much anymore. I sang on the stage through about 30 years old when I had my
0: first child. Do you miss it? No. Did you get super nervous?
1: I was really good at flipping a switch. And I would say that I still am. Um, you know, I always often talk about the fact that in college, I majored in music. I also majored in econ. Um, I think... Economics got me job interviews and my music major is actually the skills I use. And you know, I think about like practice makes perfect. I'm never unprepared for anything. The thought of going on stage and singing an aria when you didn't know every nuance is just frightening. Um, the ability to put the switch on, like I have to perform right now and I am just going to do that regardless of what's happening at home, how tired I am, all those things, uh, there's a switch that goes on and I am on go mode. Um, And then just the ability to command a room, you know, just to speak with authority on a topic, um, I think is something I gained
0: with my years on the stage. Oh, 100%. I would totally agree with that. What are some other hidden talents or things that you, you know, find as your kind of sweet spot?
1: I do spend many hours on a horse.
0: What's your horse's name?
1: Stella. Oh, yeah. And how
0: how old is Stella?
1: She's fifteen, um, which for a horse is kind of middle middle age. Yeah. Um, and yeah, I just find a lot of relaxation. It's like the one time I don't look at my phone. You know, I don't have my phone with me when I'm riding. Um, it's also something that I feel responsible and a little obligated for this creature so I make sure I do it consistently like I wouldn't put it off like if it was the gym I would say probably say oh I I'm not going to go today because I'm too busy but I don't do that with horses because I feel the obligation towards the creature Um, and it's just lovely to be outside
0: oh I'm sure so what words would your kids use to describe you tireless um
1: if it's my kids, probably slightly annoying, as I don't let them get away with much, um, and persistent. And how old are the kids? I have a
0: 22-year-old, a 19-year-old, and a 15-year-old. That's amazing. Is there anything that you've watched or listened to or read recently that you would recommend?
1: I just really enjoyed getting through the five seasons of The Amazing Mrs.
0: Maisel. Oh, Yeah. Well, I was obsessed, and then I kind of lost interest at like season three. I guess I should muscle through.
1: I would actually tell you that I piddled around with one, two, and three because they were cute and fun and lighthearted. Season five was really phenomenal.
0: Okay, I'll push through. I'm in. I'm in. So tell me, uh, tell me everything. Where are you from, and what was your childhood like?
1: I um, am from a wonderful family. I'm very blessed. I did move nine times before I went to college, um, and so I very much view that as part of my upbringing—the you know adjusting to different places—and really it was about my father's career. He was in the military, and then just you know he was an ambitious executive, and so we moved with companies. Um, but we landed in the Pacific Northwest, and so I've always thought of myself as a Pacific Northwester, whether that be Portland or Gig Harbor. Um, And then I went to school in California and knew I wanted to get back to the Pacific Northwest. And my family has pretty much migrated to the Seattle region. Um, But we really spent my childhood all over the country. Um, Family was just an enormous trait and quality that was instilled in us, um, very close to our cousins and our aunts. And family gatherings are required. Uh, That's not an option. Um, and I very much am grateful for all of that. So now with my family here in the Pacific Northwest, I've got my three kids. My sister has four. My brother has two kids. We we really make it a priority to get together and have all of our children know each other and um, be
0: part of this larger ecosystem of family. I love that. So I'm guessing you and your siblings are probably pretty resilient, and determined, and you have to be somewhat, even if you're faking it, extroverted, if you move that many times.
1: Mm, That's interesting, because I am definitely an introvert.
0: Right, Um, but like the faking it extrovert, like you have to put yourself out there.
1: You do. I think that comes back to my life on the stage. You know, I'm quite good at turning it on, and I think a lot of people interpret that I'm an extrovert, but I am absolutely not. Um, I will always go and hibernate when I can, if it's up to me. Um, but as a, we had to adjust and find ways to become part of a new community often. And I think that has really stood me well in terms of life. You know, you, number one, I'm very comfortable being by myself um, and I often prefer it. Um, And then I'm really keen on finding a few close friends. And I will tell you that as I think about my different places I've lived, different stages of life, I always have about one or two dear, dear friends that I will never let go. But I don't have masses amounts of friends from each of those
0: times. What was your favorite place aside from the Pacific Northwest where you live with your family? Besides
1: the Pacific Northwest, that's hard. To answer. I would say my favorite place I've ever lived is Gig Harbor, Washington, which is the Pacific Northwest. And that's just, it wins by far. So we, you know, that's primarily where I grew up in my junior high years and just living on the sound, um, having a boat, being out with my dad, fishing and crabbing. And then I, I mentioned, I love horses. We had our barn like right next to there. And so I would be right with my horses and ride them in the sound. And it was just a remarkable place to be
0: a child. Oh, it sounds idyllic, 100%. Um, How do you think part of that upbringing influenced your values, I guess, just your approach to life and your approach to leadership?
1: When I think of my approach to leadership and my career today, I am very much my father's daughter. Um, My dad has always been a public company executive. And I loved talking with him about it. And I think back to nuggets that he shared at the dinner table and just having um, that pattern in our life um, is something that, you know, I really learned from and took with me. And I, I think that if I could be a leader like my father, I I would be proud.
0: That's great. Is he still alive? Yes. And so is he a go-to for you? Like when you're making big life decisions who, do you have your little like advisory committee?
1: I do, yes. And I I think t- in today's world, we call the mentors. I, I have a lot of opinions about the word mentor, meaning I feel like it's very hard to be matched. I feel like people are always trying to, to match make mentors. My mentors in my career have been very natural. Um, my father's clearly been one of them. He's a little bit more, I would just say, a different generation, and his business principles are very much rooted in sound financial judgment um you know likes and users aren't his metric it's ebitda and financials and unit economics
0: right well that <laughs> so that he, makes sense as an investor
1: right so he always brought me back to like yeah. okay this internet craze what is this like how does it make money well dad we're not worried about making money we're worried about people coming to our website no 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 you have to figure out how to make money you know so he would always remind yes. me of what actually drives a company. Um, but throughout my history, you know, I've had wonderful, wonderful people that I've worked for. I've also had really bad people that I've worked for. I think you learn equally from both. Um, and I will often, like when I have a question in my mind or a tough employee situation where I'm trying to give a difficult message, I'll go back to, okay, what would David Obershaw do? Like he was one of my bosses who was just really talented at this i uh, you know or what it what how would john stanton handle this decision making process um so these are some of the people that you know i view in my small circle of i would really love to be more like them and learn from them and i'll text them and pick up the phone at any moment so i feel yeah, really blessed super organic
0: versus this like official like hi nice to meet you will you be my mentor it's the so random right. i'm the same way i'm Yeah. And I agree with you. So I'm guessing you were probably pretty good at school because you went to Stanford and from Gig Harbor, you know, who, who was the one kind of exposing you to all of your options?
1: Right. Well, so I was in high school in Portland, um, by that time. And I was with a fairly ambitious high school, public high school, but Lake Ridge, I feel very fortunate to have gotten into Stanford. My children now who are all either in college or thinking through the college process remind me, because they looked it up, that the year I got into Stanford was the highest acceptance rate ever.
0: <laughs> That's awesome.
1: <laughs> so, so they like to remind me of that regularly. Um, I feel incredibly fortunate that that worked out, and that's where I ended up. Um, I would say, you know, Stanford, I knew that it was a flyer. I think it, it always is a flyer. Meaning, you know, they get so many fabulous applications, and then at some point, it's a coin toss. Um, so the coin toss went my way, and I do think it helped in my college aspirations. I went to all the schools, and I sang. You know, I did an audition, and not that Stanford is a music school, but I think that just makes you it. it puts a little weight on your application. There's something you did really well. Um, I was also the um you know, the number one mezzo in the US at the time, I won the the US
0: uh, competition for mezzo sopranos. So that helps. Oh my gosh, that's amazing. That's super cool. Are any of your kids musical? No.
1: (laughs) (laughs) My son, he cannot even carry a tune. My middle, she can, um, but maybe the voice quality isn't there hopefully they're not listening to this. Um, (laughs) And my youngest actually has a gorgeous voice. She just has no interest.
0: So you studied econ and um, music. Did you have a sense at that time, like if if we were this age, just talking and, you know, hanging out, what would you be saying you wanted to be when you grew up?
1: You know, that is one thing that I've always had a lot of clarity on, and I don't know why. Um, I didn't do a lot of soul searching. I knew that I liked business. I knew that I was drawn to the numbers. Um, I think one thing I've always appreciated about the role of the finance or the CFO is that there's a construct in which to make decisions. So I can go back to a slate of numbers. I can read the numbers and then work through it and come to a logical conclusion. And I like that decision-making process. Um, I would not say that my forte is visionary. I think I'm okay there, but I partner really well with a CEO type that has a big vision. And I love big visions that are huge and seem unrealistic. I love to partner with that person and then take that vision and make it tangible. So how can I listen to what they're saying and then distill it down into a plan, Um, whether that's a plan of like, okay, here's the roadmap for the product. Here's the number of people we have to hire. And therefore that's how much money we have to raise. So I think that's my superpower um, and trying to enable that visionary to have a plan
0: that he can execute or she. That makes total sense to me and it never even occurred to me to think like that, but it is so true how, how clean it feels when you, when numbers don't lie, it's like they're they're yeah. very pure. And so did somebody put some of these ideas in your mind? Like were there teachers that kind of said to you, Hey, this would be a good career for you. Or did you add all that up through the exposure through your dad and just different people along the way?
1: Yeah, it, no one really had that one-on-one conversation with me I just think it was the environment that I grew up in plus I've always had a very strong sense of self and I, I just knew that that was my path and I can't really explain why and I yeah I, I do understand and appreciate that that is unique and odd and I wish I could give people a reason why I knew that <laughs> I even wrote an essay in sixth grade that my mother saved that said I was going to major in music and economics, and that I was going to work in business. Um, oh, that's
0: crazy. So, and I, so did you get recruited out of college? And it looks like from my research that you started at Deloitte. Is that your first yep. job out of school? And so it was like the on-campus recruiting of like, which, okay, cool. And what, through what lens did you assess that opportunity? Like when you're young, you're thinking, are you thinking people and impact and those types of things that we talk about today? Or were you just like, oh, I like the location and the pay. Like, it's so simple when you're younger.
1: I wasn't thinking those things. I was thinking that, and I went into accounting at Deloitte, um, that I really wanted to join a company like that because number one, I could see a lot of things very quickly. When you're at one of those big firms, you move from company to company. I didn't know what industry I'd be interested in. Um, so I liked the idea of moving environments. And um, I also appreciated the fact that they give you a lot of responsibility really early. So within mm-hmm. two years, you're running the projects yourself and people are working for you. And I was hungry for that. I wanted to be in charge pretty quickly. Mm-hmm. Um, so, So I liked those aspects about that career. I also tell people today that, they're just great training grounds. They teach you how to 100%. manage your time and how to operate in a professional way. Like they're they're just great classic training grounds. So I'm really grateful for my time there.
0: I could not agree more. And in, in all the interviews that I've done, obviously through recruiting for 30 years, but also just even on the podcast, those foundations, whether it's like you know, accounting and or consulting or investment banking, where there's structure and there's exposure and there's discipline, it gives you such a foundation and, and just also a way to look at other opportunities after that. Um, but it's not that typical that somebody would leave and start their own company. So young. like that, that was really cool. I didn't know that about you until I started this research. So tell me about, it's called skills village
1: Yes, and that was a few companies later. So I okay, left yeah, me. for a tech company called Red Pepper Software. I did fall in love with the tech industry, which wasn't surprising because I was in the Silicon Valley. So that's what I was surrounded by. But I loved the idea of, really, I just wanted responsibility early. I, I would say that's what I was drawn to. And in the tech industry, because it was growing so fast, they were giving younger people more responsibility. Mm -hmm. So I I was able to get a role as, you know, an international controller at the age of 26 um, at Red Pepper Software. And I was devastated because day two of my first day of employment, uh, PeopleSoft announced that they were acquiring us. And I thought all my plans about being an entrepreneur just got killed. And my career was dead um, oh, I, no! I thought I was, you know, I had it all figured out. Of course, it ended up being fabulous because PeopleSoft was a larger company, but also so well run and so many things to learn there early stage of my career. So I gained a tremendous amount of skills working with PeopleSoft for several years. And while I was there, they put me on a A team or a committee, whatever you want to call it, to to look at areas that they could grow as a company because they were very strong in HR software and were expanding out. Um, And so one of the areas that my team and I identified was the management of contract labor. So PeopleSoft was really strong in HR labor, but not really for those that used hourly workers or that type of thing. And um, quite frankly, PeopleSoft didn't have the capacity to pursue that And so we were antsy and they gave us the blessing to leave the company and start our own company. And that was skills village. And so, you know, I did that kind of my late twenties and I did it with a friend. And, um, I always say that's the best way to get a C title is you give it to yourself. (laughs) So I gave myself the chief financial title and he was the CEO and, you know, we didn't know what we didn't know, um, which is a blessing, really, you just run forward and you sort it out. Um, And we raised some money and we built the company, we built it to 10 million in revenue or so. And um, ultimately, PeopleSoft bought it.
0: That's amazing. It's like it comes full circle back to PeopleSoft.
1: Well, we knew they didn't have it.
0: Yeah, that's super cool. That's amazing (laughs) that they let you leave to go do it.
1: It is actually, I think back to that. And again, I think everyone was just running so fast that they didn't really think
0: about it. So Yeah. Um, what What year was this around? Because I w- I think that I was in because PeopleSoft was a client of mine in San Francisco. So um, we started
1: the company in '98 and sold it in 2000. I think yeah. we actually spanned it three years, but it was right you know in 2000 it was an, it was a scary acquisition because they offered to buy us before the crash. SAP was also interested in buying us, so we had a little bit of a bidding situation, which was wonderful. And then the market crashed between term sheet and acquisition. And I just remember just being so nervous, but it went through. But but you got
0: got it done. That's amazing. And so who do you, I mean, obviously you're great with numbers. You can, you can look at the numbers in this type of deal, but having never done a deal before like this, at least if it were me, um, who did you go to? Like, was it your dad? Were there others? Did you, it sounds like you're very resourced. Like, I know who to go to for what, and I don't go to everybody for everything. I go to the right person. And so who helped navigate that for you?
1: I I don't know who helped navigate. I mean, my CEO and I did it together. Um, He was a great partner. He knew PeopleSoft. He was kind of a generation older. He knew PeopleSoft well. So I, I give a lot of the negotiation kudos to him. But there is a lot of learning on the job. And I always remind young entrepreneurs this, that, you know, you... You raise money and it is a specific skill set. It's a specific language 100%. and it's okay that you don't know it. Right. So uh, one of my favorite memories was um, we we're raising money and one of the VCs who ended up being the one we took the money from handed me a term sheet in person and wanted to walk me through it and basically negotiate with me right there in person now as I look back on that I know what I should have done which is listen and then send it to my lawyer but I didn't know that at the time I was like I have to look like I'm sophisticated and know what I'm doing so I looked at this quickly I remembered a few terms and I ran into the restroom I told him I had to use the restroom and I called my lawyer in the restroom and I was like I've I, what is participating preferred I don't know what I what what should I be negotiating for what is you know <laughs> She gave me this debrief really, really quickly. Um, and then I went out and just, you know, acted like I was on stage and and negotiated the term sheet. I didn't understand. That's the words so
0: perfect. I love it.
1: Yeah. I didn't understand the words enough, but she gave me enough key. Like, she's like, no, you want to get this. I didn't know why I wanted to get this, but I just knew I had to get that. Um, and <laughs> so...
0: That's so perfect. What do you, where do you guide people now, including me? I mean, I've been recruiting with like people talking about terms and equity and we do a lot of investing, but it is overwhelming and a little intimidating, all the lingo. Where do you send people to learn? Like if you have a brand new entrepreneur and they're about to go raise or they're about to have some sort of event.
1: I don't know if I send them anywhere. I have become very open to say, it's okay if you don't know what these words mean. Like, there is no reason in day to day life you should know these words, even if you were a finance major. Like, these are very specific to this VC mm-hmm. world. And an entrepreneur only raises money periodically, versus me mm-hmm. as a VC, I'm doing it every day. So, um, it's okay that they don't know these words. And you should take a moment and take it back and work with your lawyers and learn them. And don't respond to me right away. So I actually view that when I think back to that moment and me running into the bathroom, that VC was somewhat doing me a disservice. They
0: were hotboxing you. Yeah.
1: Yeah, He knew I didn't know. There was no way I would have known. He should have given me the grace to say, I'm going to give this to you and you should go back and look. But but, you know,
0: anyways, I I managed through it. But
1: um, that is what I would tell any
0: entrepreneur to do today. So you st- you were at PeopleSoft. Would love to know you've worked for some amazing companies. Um, what of those? I mean, I guess they all are building blocks, but are there any that stand out as like this is when I really did the most growing? Or you know, if I were to go start a company today, I would emulate the values of this company. Mm. Or like some key takeaways that you've had through your career.
1: Yeah, two different questions, really. Yes. Um, And I'll take the building blocks one first, which is, as I look back on my career, I did go from a small company to a big company, to a small company, to a big company, to a small company. And I would say that that was incredibly valuable, meaning I saw what a big company should look like and the processes that were needed at that stage. And then I'd go to a small one and I was very thoughtful about when those processes and structure needed to be put in place, because I knew where we needed to go. So that was, um, as I think about my career in building companies in a healthy way, that's been an incredibly important building block for me. That was not at all planned. That was just, just happenstance. And it's
0: unique but, also, very unique.
1: But it did, it, I did learn a lot. I do think I'm good at learning Like, I'm really good at observing what's working and what's not and taking it in and then applying it. I would say that you own your own career, right? I have had bad managers and I've been in companies with not so great culture. Did I say that, oh my gosh, they're hurting my career? No, those are things to learn from. What was bad about it? Let's not do that again. I'm not going to do it that way. Right. And so um, I think that's an incredibly important acknowledgement that good managers and bad managers are
0: important. What are some examples to you of bad culture, bad managers? Is it just the obvious things like transparency and communication and, you know, what what are some examples?
1: It is the obvious things. It's things, you know, not being communicative with what the goals are, having everyone work. And you don't understand the why, you know, there's if I think about the world of finance, maybe there's weekly reports we do. Well, why are we doing them? Is anyone using them? Are we staying up late on a Sunday night to produce them because we just think that they need to be done? Um, but what's the actual end purpose? Um, those are some of the things that I, I think back to, you know, my, my biggest management suggestion is to have hard conversations. My best managers had hard conversations on a regular basis. Um, Those are the conversations I remember.
0: What's your style as a manager?
1: It's hard to talk about your own style. I wanna be self-aware, but I will tell you that I care very, very deeply for those that I work with and and who work for me. I always tell the individual, and this is really in an operating company, not so much in a venture firm, although it, it does apply to a venture firm. But in an operating company, I will always say to the person that works for me, I can't guarantee you that you're going to make a ton of money on this stock price. I do, I I hope you do. And that my intention is that you do, but I can't guarantee that. What I can guarantee is that I will get you your next job. And let's brainstorm about what that should be and how we can round out your skill set such that you get it while you're here um and that's something that's i've been that's
0: incredible ma- that's hope that's very unique
1: i think that's, like, that's operating from on, like
0: abundance and not fear
1: well i i've been maniacally focused on it since i started managing people because i want them to gain something from this experience and i feel very responsible. They all want to come in and make a ton of money. I just can't guarantee that. I can't control that. So what can I control? So I kind of, it's like a level setting to me. It's like relief for me actually. Um, and I would say as a result, one of the things that I love the most is I have a lot of CFOEs out there that used to work for me. Um, I'm CFOs sure. in the wild. And I I feel incredibly proud
0: of that. Oh, I'm sure. So, Event, Clearwire, King, Digital Entertainment—all kind of like different industries, different sectors, different sizes. Like you said, yes. um, And that you're a quick learner. Um, How how is it for you? Like, I mean, obviously, guiding a company through an IPO, um, dealing with like acquisitions. Like, when are you the most um, energized? Like, what stage of company and what moment do you love that? intensity of a deal?
1: So you you rightly pointed out that I've been with lots of different industries and lots of different sizes. And often people struggle to find the continuity in my career, besides the fact that it's always been CFO, right? So um, in my mind, there is huge continuity in my career because I lived it. Um, and the continuity is chaos. And I just love chaos. So where do I thrive? I thrive when there's a mess and that it has to be wrangled. Um, and there is a big prize. I, I only love companies that are going after a big thing that sounds hard. Every job I've ever taken, I knew I would take it because I wasn't sure if
0: I could do it. Yeah, that's awesome. That's, That's what
1: excited me. And in fact, you know, it was really brought home to me when I moved from the Bay Area to Seattle. I had been a CFO of venture-backed firms at that point, Avant, you pointed out, and Skills Village. So when I moved up here, I met with VCs and they had me meet with their companies. And I met with a lot of Series B companies and they needed to raise money. And I just was like, yeah, I know how to do that. Yep, I can do that. I've done it before. I wasn't interested in any of them. I just didn't wanna do it a second time. Um, The one that I knew I would take the job was I met with Craig McCaw about Clearwire, didn't know anything about telecom. I didn't know what spectrum was. I didn't know that there was stuff in the air that transmitted things. Um, And I sat there across from Craig McCaw and he told me about how he was gonna provide data to the world through the air. And I was like, yeah, that sounds fun. (laughs)
0: Like That sounds crazy and crazy fun.
1: It sounds crazy. And he was needing to raise money on the big capital markets. At that point, I'd only done venture backed, you know, markets. And um, it was high risk, high reward. And that's the type of stuff I love. I love like a huge TAM, a huge market, something that could either crash and burn or be amazing. Um, And those are the things that I tend to run towards.
0: I love that. So it's like the adventure. And if you were like listening as a fly on the wall and people were talking about you good or bad, what would you want them to say? That's good. And what would you be like? Oh no. If they said that, like misunderstood bad.
1: Um, I think good is that I never give up and, um, I will be with you till the bitter end and I'm incredibly loyal and work ethic is huge. Um, I think bad would be that as a manager, I will pursue five different avenues and drive you crazy. So because I'm in situations that are risky, um, if I'm trying to find money for a company, I will pursue five different routes, even though I think three of them won't work, we're still gonna pursue them and we're gonna do it all at once and we work our tails off. So there are are a lot of people out there that probably don't wanna work for me um, because I do work people pretty hard.
0: Yeah, well, it's a, do you think that that's a um, geography thing? Hard work is not a bad thing. When you talk about your dad's, like, old school, like that generation, it was about hard work.
1: Yeah, I I don't know if it's geography or age or whatnot. I almost think it's the environments that I've been in. Mm. Um, I would say that every. Every company I've been in, I set aside a PeopleSoft, which is big and stable, or a Deloitte & Touche, which is big and stable, have had moments where we were like, it's going to implode or we're going to mm. save it. Yeah. So it's that urgency that drives. Yeah. Um, I'm not going to let anything implode.
0: So I want to know about Madrona. Like, how did you, I just remember being really excited um, because I heard, I did hear amazing things. You have a phenomenal reputation. Um and I know it's now been, I don't even know, six, five, six years. How long have you been there?
1: Yeah, I think about six six years. I, yeah, my and last. So
0: how how did that opportunity come? And that's like kind of a a switch. And it is.
1: Yeah. How it, has that nasty. been? Because you missed
0: the operating, like you've been running these companies.
1: Yes. It was a big decision in my journey. I was in London as the CFO of King Digital, which is the game Candy Crush, and we sold that to Activision. And so moving my family back to Seattle, I was really excited to join the board of Hasbro at the time. So rather than jump into another operating company, I wanted to come back get my comp- my family settled, joined the board of Hasbro. And then, you know, I've known the Madrona team for a long time. Of course, Seattle, you know, we all know each other. And so I connected with Matt McElwain when I came back um, to the area. And he just welcomed me and said, if you need a place to sit or a place to be while you sort things out, we're here. And I was like, okay, well, that's that's lovely. Um, but I I didn't think too much about it. But I did start to seek out what I wanted to do in this next phase. I'd now been a CFO multiple times. Um, I was getting calls for those roles. Again, many of them weren't here in Seattle. And I knew that I wanted my kids to be here for high school and middle school. So, you know, I was looking at you know, having a C-level career in Seattle can sometimes be hard without moving a lot. Um, I then joined the board of Mongo, which I just mm-hmm. love Mongo. And it was the right stage for me. And it was a board role. So it was New York, but I could do it still live in Seattle. And that's when I really started to have more in-depth conversations with Madrona. I did want to have roots here in Seattle. I had two board seats. How can I help out the community? And so I really started with Madrona by just coming on and saying, how can I help your CFOs? Like, can do you want me to talk to them, mentor them, advise them? Um, and that's really how I got started here. And, you know, it was called a venture partner. Um, but, just working across the portfolio and seeing if there was any advice or whatnot I could do to support that community. And so I really got to know the venture side of the business, the culture at Madrona, and just really feeling like part of the team. And um, that migrated into a full investing role.
0: And Wow. And so um, I'm sure you found it really rewarding and obviously everyone in the portfolio to get your wisdom on um, the role of CFO through everything that you've been through. But investing is like a whole, you know, it's a whole other thing. What do you find most fulfilling about the role as an investor and what's the hardest part?
1: Yeah, I would say that I anticipated it would be a natural extension of my career and it has been less of a natural extension of my career than I anticipated. (laughs) It's been more of a learning curve than I expected and I welcomed that learning curve but it has pushed me. Um, what I love about it is building companies. So that is my natural instinct. I feel like I know all stages of companies from building my own to being in big ones, to watching them grow and when to put in certain things at certain times. I love working with CEOs that are hungry and you know I can really collaborate with them. And, and it's the hard, it's such a hard job being a CEO of a startup. And so, and I, I fully feel that and can empathize with them. So I love, love that aspect of this job. Um, I think what is harder for me is that Madrona is an absolutely team oriented environment, which is unique in venture. And yet it's still not, you know, we're not structured like a corporation. It's not like you have a group of people that report to you, and you report to them, and you have a mission, it's it's much more of an individualized sport. And um, just having that confidence in yourself to make your own decisions, and to be have the conviction that this is a company you want to branch out for and make that investment. That has been a little bit more of a stretch for me.
0: Yeah, walk me through for people who don't know, I'm guessing people do that are listening, but what is the process of investing in a company? Like, what's the first thing that happens? How does deal flow come to you versus Matt versus Tim? Um, And then what's the process for making a decision to invest?
1: Yeah. And I'll speak from Madrona's perspective. And I just want to clarify that because every venture firm has their own culture and their own way of doing that. And I would encourage any entrepreneur to ask that question of the VC they're talking to, because I think it's important to understand that. Um, It's not meant to be opaque or confusing. Um, So, you know, as I think about how do I find deals, I had to learn that. So, you know, what I had to understand and was that I could get kind of any deal flow that happened to stumble in my door, but they were often in areas that I didn't know anything about. Um, And, for instance, they might be about shopping. So when I first joined, I got a lot of that. And I didn't know really what to do with that because I didn't want to say no. It felt that felt rude, but I was, you know, kind of stumbling into things I didn't really know about. So one thing I learned was to use media, whether because I do a lot of speaking. So I'll be on panels at conferences or something. And to be very clear, to use that stage to say what I was interested in investing in. and ultimately. I'm interested in investing in things that make the life of the CFO better, which quite frankly is pretty boring and not that sexy. And um, But the more I said that out in the public, the more those types of deals would come to me.
0: And, and you um, know it, you could do it in your sleep. You're like, I know totally. I'm like, oh, gut I will see say yes.
1: This is going to solve the messiness of the back office is a real thing. And um I've experienced it and lived it. So you know that has helped me get the right types of companies. I've also become bolder in terms of saying this isn't something I know about and that's okay. Like I'm not gonna pretend, I'm not gonna spend a lot of cycles learning a new area just because a deal But can't. What happens
0: from there? Do you send it to another investor in Madrona or your your friends and other venture funds?
1: Yes, I, I will send it. So number one, you know, Madrona has some investment thesis is. So it, it needs to be within that umbrella. And assuming it's within that umbrella, I will send it to one of my partners um, who might know more about that space than me. Um, and so I've gotten better at doing that. Um, the other thing I like entrepreneurs to realize is that, you know, I maybe see three or four new companies a week, and I probably invest in two or three deals a year. And so some of it has nothing to do with them. It might be i just did the
0: math. I'm not that good, but in my mind, I'm like, that's like 0.75%. It's it's
1: right. It's just hard. It's like less
0: than 1%.
1: And it could be dumb reasons. Like it's a really busy week and I'm just, I'm working on another deal and I just don't have the cycles for something else. You know, I always try and handle every inbound with respect because I know they're all putting themselves on the line. Um, But there are- reasons that just have nothing to do with the entrepreneur. Um, and that's just hard. Uh, so, you know, just trying to sift through the deal flow um, and make good choices mm-hmm. is, is something I'm always trying to get better at and smarter at. I think early on, when I say that the transition to VC was, was bigger than I thought as a transition, my natural instinct is to help people. Like I've raised so much money So when I would have someone come in and maybe I naturally liked them, but their pitch was bad. And I'd be like, well, I'm not going to invest in the company, but can I help you with your pitch? Well, then I realized I was spending cycles helping someone. And then when I ultimately said no, it was actually more painful
0: to them. It's well, and, or not to be crass, but like everything you're saying resonates because there's a ton of overlap with recruiting and venture, ironically, Mm -hmm. you know, the candidates that are like, I'm making a transition and can I pick your brain and 20 of those a day. I mean, you know, especially right now in this market, like so many candidates, I can't help, or I just don't have the position for, and in my dream world, I would send them, here's these five other recruiters you can talk to, or here's how to redo your resume. And you want to be that person. But then you're like, I felt very busy, but I didn't actually do anything.
1: There's my use of time, which that might not be the best use of my time from a selfish perspective. But then there was also that when I did choose to use my time that way, I realized I like hurt them more Mm. because ultimately I still wasn't going to invest in them. Yeah. And now I've gotten to know them more. So the rejection feels more personal.
0: Mm, That's interesting.
1: And so it took me kind of six months for that learning curve. of like, you know, maybe I can give some choice, you know, pieces of advice in that initial meeting, but to not lead it to a second meeting.
0: Yeah. And so given your numbers background and also being a person who wants to help and give back, what are your things, your drivers for when you're but when you know it feels right.
1: Yeah, and I just will remind everyone that Madrona really invests really early in companies. So they're seed companies, they're usually just a few people in the company. So very Mm. hard to be incredibly analytical because there's really not much to be analytical on. Um, I would say that the first thing is it needs to be a big idea. So it needs to have a big market and it has the potential to be a big company. And the the individual has to have a big vision Um, and just as important and maybe more important are the people themselves. So, you know, because we invest so early on, we are going to be in this journey together for a long time and there are going to be things that go wrong and there are going to be trials and tribulations and hard conversations. And do I enjoy being with you and spending all those hours and that investment in you as a person. Um, And I, you know, there's the old adage that a talented person can take an okay idea and still make it great. And an untalented person can't take a great idea and make it great. So, so team, you know, is number one, do I want to work with them? Number two, do they have the talent to do it? Um, It's just such a key element in this.
0: How about experience as far as, you know, you said team, like obviously the person, the attitude, that the aptitude, but what about their, um, you know, second time CEO versus first time CEO?
1: Um, I've done a mixture of both. I would say I do love to know that they have felt the problem they're solving.
0: Mm, I I love the
1: story to how they got to the realization that this was a problem that needed to be solved. Um, I tend to not gravitate as much to someone who just, hey, I want to start a company and I'm brainstorming all these ideas and oh, I, I thought of this one. Um, I tend to gravitate towards people who experienced a problem and then wanted to build a company to solve it or you know, somehow grew to understand that problem.
0: That makes total sense for so many reasons, but the biggest almost being the the grit and perseverance it takes. So what are some success stories or some things that you're excited about in the world of investing, like companies, ideas, people, future of like areas that you yeah. um, invest in?
1: So I always feel bad for Erica. Um, Erica is our head of PR and communications here at Madrona.
0: I know because, Erica, she's fantastic.
1: Yes, yeah, she is fantastic. I am her worst nightmare because I love boring things. <laughs> she would love me to do something cooler than what I do. But I tend to gravitate towards nuts and bolts problems that need to be solved in the back office of a company that no one really understands as a problem. Um, and I am loving seeing efficiencies that are driven. So, you know, one of the things that I've always had that I've always done as a CFO and I've had my companies do that I'm the audit chair of is make a list of anything you do on a spreadsheet and then how can we automate them? And whenever I find a company that automates something that was on one of those spreadsheets, I I love it. So, you know, I've got a company that um, is tackling the problem of automating cash flow forecasting and they're using AI to do that. AI is something that is incredibly useful in lots of different forums, right? So it's gonna be used in the back office to automate and do things in a more efficient and hopefully more accurate way. Um, So finding applications for that in a very useful and purposeful way is is super exciting to me. Um, I love finding solutions to, you know, I think about moving money, moving money is painful and expensive. And we have an antiquated banking system. And, you know, I think back to my days of, at, King Digital, where we operated in every country and, you know, how much cash I had captured overseas. So anything that can like help that world is, is super interesting to me. Um, So again, these are not sexy or exciting ideas, but these are the things that get me going.
0: They're sexy if you're a CEO who's running a company who's looking for efficiencies. Right. <laughs> um, what I wouldn't know to do though, because I just wrote this down and like make a spreadsheet because we're we're in this zone right now thinking a lot about AI and how to create efficiencies and turn our people into superhumans
1: using mm-hmm. AI.
0: Um, and so like for our back office, I would love to have Heather who runs it do that, but I wouldn't even know where to begin to look for the solution to, to do like a comparison. Like, does this exist already? Um, so like the thing that you were just saying, like the, the person who's trying to create automation or, um, efficiencies around
1: anytime you have to extract something out of a system, yeah. dump it into Excel and then manipulate the data and sort it and do stuff with it. There's a
0: problem. I guess I'm curious what has excited you specifically about this region. Cause you're passionate about it personally, but now you're like right in it as an investor in the thick of the ecosystem, what's your personal um, opinion about like the state of this community and this investing environment?
1: Yeah, I love this part of the world. I love this community. You know, I think I am not a Bay Area, I'm gonna use the word FOMO type person. Um, And when I'm down there, it's a little bit too frenetic. Um, It's a little bit like, let's be in the coolest deal type of situation. I feel like in this region, we're a little bit more grounded. We have some incredible tech here. and When I think of the cloud companies that are here, I think of the AI that is, you know, I'm on the board of AI too. So I'm just on the forefront of all of these conversations of this brand new tech. So I'm able to hear it in a very real way, um, but with a real grounding. And then the entrepreneurs that come out of that ecosystem are just really exciting. So I I just feel like I can get a little bit more real in this region. Um, And yet the tech is tremendous. There's just a tremendous amount of opportunity here.
0: Yeah, no, I I would definitely agree with that. Are there initiatives or like collaborations um, that you've been involved in in Seattle that you're particularly drawn to right now or proud of or, or looking for opportunities?
1: Um, I will say that one of the things that I do that's outside of my day-to-day, but is definitely something I do with Madrona, is the Onboarding Women Initiative. And so I run that with, you know, several other, you know, Deloitte and Touche and Perkins Cooey and uh, Spencer Stewart here in the, in the area. And um, we run a group for eight months uh, where we run 30 to 40 women through an education program of what it's like to be on a board. And at this point, we've had about 140 board appointments from that over the five years we've been doing it. And it's just really fun.
0: That's got to be super rewarding.
1: I mean, it's rewarding for me because I get to know this ecosystem of tremendously talented executives. Um, And then I see them getting placed on boards, which is because they're so talented, but I'm quite excited about that. I see the diversity on the board level changing. Um, and it's changed tremendously over the past five years, which I appreciate and I'm encouraged by. So it's felt very impactful, and I've gotten to know some wonderful people through it.
0: Are there certain skill sets that are like, like I'm sure you're on the audit committee, you know, you're on the audit committee, they kind of put you into a lane. And are are there certain ones, I've heard that that role specifically gets kind of like a lot of applicants or a lot of people. Are there certain gaps where... You're like, we need more women to be doing onboarding women that have this skill set. Is there a gap there?
1: You know, I would say there's a mismatch of skills. Um, there are certain skills that are re- are needed on public company boards, and there's certain career tracks that don't quite fit. And um,
0: what are some examples?
1: Yeah, that's the hard truth. Um, so for instance, on a normal tech company, we wouldn't have a GC on a board or general counsel. That's not normally, there's not usually a legal expertise on the board. Um, and you have a lot of women GCs. So it's, you know, that that track, such such amazing people, such an amazing talent, but probably not going to jump to be on a public company board, unless it's a highly regulated industry that needs legal skills. Um, but yet, you know, product or engineering, go to market, finance; those are all skill sets that are needed on boards. And so, those are the the lanes, the swim lanes that we tend to look for. The thing I'm always reminding folks when they are looking to be on a board is that you need to be an expert in your area. It's the it's the top job, right? <laughs> so you're not going on a board to Learn to the next level. You're going onto the board because you have wisdom to impart. So you need to be at a certain stage in your career where you were the head of the go-to-market organization or you were the head of engineering or you were the head of the finance role and you're bringing that wisdom and knowledge to another environment.
0: And so the onboarding women is all for publicly traded boards.
1: We do both. uh, We do public, private and not-for-profit.
0: Yeah, that's fantastic. I love that you're doing that. It's Love been really fun, really fun. Really yeah. fun. What attributes do you think make someone a good board member?
1: Several attributes. Number one, you are working within a team. So it, a board might be nine people. It might be 11 people. You need to be respectful. You need to learn from those around you and listening. You also need to have a point of view and an opinion and you were probably invited to be on that board because you have a certain skill set. So, for me, it's clearly finance. So, when the finance world comes up, I speak up, right? That's my swim lane. Um, and, you know, so you have to be collaborative and then yet have, be ready to speak up when it is your area of expertise. And um, there is, An ability to be engaged and involved and get ready to work hard because it's not something that you just show up to a meeting and do and leave. There's a lot of prep. There's a lot of meetings outside of the main meeting. Um, And I always encourage someone to get really involved in one area of the business um, where they can really be value added. Um, And so maybe they're meeting with management in an area of product or maybe it's for me, it's in the area of the finance group. Um, so I can go deep in one area and, and provide some expertise to the company in that region.
0: That's amazing. You, I, I really don't know how you're fitting all this in because you've got so much going on. What do you do to set yourself up for a good week, for a good day?
1: I think that I am too busy. That is a true fact. Um, I do that to myself. I think I've been that way my whole career and I always say I'm going to fix it and I haven't. Yeah. So I need I need to own that. I do treat each day differently, and I I don't use the words like I have a balanced life, but I'll use the words that I have an integrated life. So what do I need to get done today and how am I gonna work it all in? Um, the things that bring me joy for my mental health are you know, my time with my family and my children. And I, we talked about being out on the horse periodically. Um, so getting that time is important to me as well. But I really look at my day as I have X amount to get done today, and I will always go early if I need to. I'll start at any odd hour in the morning, um, and I'll usually end my day wrapping up the work at night um, once the house calms down.
0: Yeah. Well, I'm super inspired, I have to say. My ultimate question for you is what fuels you? Being useful.